Go ahead and open up your Bible, if you have one with you, to 1 Peter. Uh, we are beginning a new series, our fall series, this morning. And uh, by the way, my name is Matt. Again, I'm the uh, uh, pastor for teaching and equipping here at Anthem. So if it's your first time, welcome. We're honored that you've chosen to, to spend this morning with us. And uh, I hope that this morning will give you kind of a picture of who we are as a church and where we're going as a church. Uh, one of the reasons that we're jumping in the first period of this fall is because it actually is uh, God's word, all of God's word speaks to all of time, right? God's word is sufficient to speak into anything at, uh, at, at all times in any culture. But there is something about First Peter where it really speaks acutely to our day and time. First uh, Peter is going to start with referring to the believers uh, that, that Peter's writing to. And we're talking about the apostle Peter. Peter, kind of the dunce from the gospels, right? He's the one who's writing this. And, and he's, and I'm going to go into the background a little bit later, but he's writing to believers and he calls them exiles. He says, you are exiles. In other words, uh, we are, as believers at all times, we are exiles. We are people who this land, this place is not our home. We are strangers in a strange place at all times. And what Peter wants to do is he wants to help believers navigate that reality faithfully and biblically. What does it look like to follow Jesus, to be a Christian when you are in exile in whatever culture you're in? And I think uh, the reason why right now acutely is uh, I think this speaks so well to our day and time is because uh, uh, things are, seem to be strange out there, right? Strange land, right? Things seem to be changing. The times, they are changing. I, I think that's pretty much the understatement of the year, right? And so what Peter wants to do is Peter wants to, uh, right away, he wants to give us uh, a few truths that we can cling on to and what does it mean to be an exile, right? In whatever culture we're in. Uh, to give you a picture of, of this dynamic and how it works, uh, my, my brother recently visited, and uh, my brother's about 14 months younger than me, and, and uh, we were going through just remembering childhood memories, and as we were going through memories, there were these memories I was like, I think I repressed that memory, <laughs> right? Have you ever had that? Or somebody, like a sibling shares a story, and you're like, I think I buried that deep down. Uh, and so one of these stories was that we, uh, we lived, in, we grew up in Ohio, and there was this lake, and, and think of a man-made lake, um, don't think Lake of the Ozarks right? Don't think Lake Tahoe. Don't think beautiful crystal blue lake. Uh, think more um, like algae, right? Like a, a, a pond that hasn't been cleaned in a while, but a really, really large pond that hasn't been cleaned in a while. So we grew up on this lake, and, and at one point my uncle, now, how do I say this? That isn't harsh. My family that I came from, uh, we were called, the best term is we were called, have you ever heard the term hillbilly, right? Uh, this is my family. Uh, my uncle calls us up and he goes, hey, hey, I got this new boat. You want to go out on the boat? And we're like, Uncle Guy got a boat? That's amazing, right? So we go and we go to the lake and we find out that Uncle Guy has gone to some just like junkyard and he essentially found what were like petroleum barrels with like, you know, like uh, uh, a board placed on top of it, almost like just kind of like a floorboard. And then on top of that was like putting green grass or, or uh, like carpet that he put down on top of that and it was all worn out. And then on the back was like this makeshift engine somebody had put together. And we get on there and it was like, Uncle Guy's got a boat, right? And so we get onto the, onto the lake and we start going out. And this thing is like churning out black smoke, like putt-putting out on. It looked like, we look like the Beverly Hillbillies just on a lake, right? And so we were putting out there and then we get out into the middle of this big lake. And it's actually, it's the largest man-made lake uh, uh, I believe in North America. So it's actually pretty large. And, and so we get all the way out into the middle of it. We're looking around, we're like, all right, we're living the life. And we've got lawn chairs set up. It's called a pontoon boat. Okay, anyone ever been on a pontoon boat? 
only homemade pontoon boat, okay? And, and so we've got these uh, lawn chairs all around. This is real nice, right? But these makeshift lawn chairs all around, and we're sitting around. And as we get on, Uncle Guy's like having people get on one at a time. He's like, listen, listen, you got to sit with the same amount of weight on every part of the boat. And I was like, why? He's like, just, just make sure you keep it even. And every time someone would go to get up, he was like, hey, 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 sit down, sit down, right? He's like dangling a cigarette from a beer, beer guy, going, ah, sit down, right? Okay. So we're enjoying the sun. Cigarette smoke's wafting everywhere. <laughs> Dirty engines going everywhere. And we're just cruising around on the lake. And all of a sudden, at some point, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm looking back, and uh, my mother gets up, and she make, like, walks across the boat. <gasps> Right? And all I hear is, well, I'm not going to repeat what I heard, but what I hear is essentially, sit down, right? And then I hear all of a sudden this, <gasps> and I turn around and I look, and there's my mother at the corner with other people in the corner, and the boat is just like going underwater. Just chugging under, like, choo, 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 just chugging underwater. And water's coming up. And then my mother turns, and she just screams, and she runs, and everyone else is throwing their chairs and leaping around. And then, of course, because of the equilibrium, the boat just starts going all over the place. And my uncle kicks it in the rear, but then the, in the rear gear, but then it doesn't want to go back because the engine doesn't shift that quickly. And so everyone's screaming. And eventually, after a few minutes of all this, we're going to die, we're going to die, right? And then all of a sudden, it kind of comes, we hit equilibrium, it gets above the water, and then everyone's okay. And then I look over at my, my grandpa is just kind of sitting in the chair, and he's just chuckling to himself. Like the whole, he's just taking it all in. Right? The old wise sire. Right? And he's just laughing. And we're like, what's funny? He's like, the lake's only four feet deep. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and we realize, oh, oh, even if we'd gone, you can imagine it, like a whole bunch of, like all those hillbillies out on this boat, right? And it's like, we're dying! We're dying! And we all go down the river or into the lake and we're dying! <sighs> oh, okay. It's a little mucky. But, and then we just kind of drag the thing back to shore, right? Like, that's the worst that could have happened. Well, here's the reason why I share that story. And because it hit me when I was reading this intro to First Peter we're going to be looking at this morning is Peter says, listen, there are times in every culture where the world, you're going to feel like an exile. In the world, it just feels like you're taken on water. It feels like you're drowning. It feels like it's all going to end. It feels just incredibly overwhelming. And, and that's not to belittle those realities. That's not to make light of them. It's just to say that here's the thing. In the midst of a world, the one thing that's guaranteed is it's always going to have chaos. And in the midst of this world of chaos, at the same time, you have been given eternal truths, eternal realities, that in the midst of it, when you feel like you're sinking, you feel like you're going down, that you can actually put your feet down and you can stand on them. And as you stand on these truths, you are able to navigate through the chaos of life and do it faithfully and do it with confidence. And as we'll see, especially throughout this series, do it with a living hope, with joy, as Peter's going to say at the end of this opening, he says, with peace and grace. Can you imagine right now in the midst of everything going on, and, and I think as, as Christians, we feel in, in acute ways how we're kind of at this uh, intersection of the, the choppy waters where they're coming together and everything that's going on in the world, to be able to enter into that, to navigate that, and be a people of peace, be a people of grace, be a people of hope. Peter today is going to give us, as we open, three eternal truths we need to stand on in exile. Three eternal truths we need to be able to stand on in exile. So first we're going to see what exile looks like today, and then three truths to stand. I'm going to pray quickly and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. 
Lord, thank you that in the midst of time where it feels like we're taking on water, it feels like chaos, it feels overwhelming, we don't know which way to run, everything seems all out of balance, Lord, we thank you that in the midst of times like that, Lord, that you remind us that there are eternal realities that we can stand on. And not just any eternal realities, but eternal realities that are rooted in you. And so, Lord, help us this morning to grasp these things. Lord, to set the stage for the rest of what you have to say in your word in this book. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what, what does exile look like today? So I, I just want to bring, kind of go from Peter to our day. Like, kind of contextualize, go from what was happening in Peter's day and why does this matter today? And what is Peter addressing? What is the universal thing here that Peter's addressing that we're going to be especially pouring into in this series? A little bit of background of First Peter. It's probably written by the same Peter that we, we read about in the Gospels again. And uh, it's probably written, dictated to a guy named Silvanus. Uh, this is at the end in chapter 5. We're going to see this. This was a pretty common thing in the ancient world that they would actually uh, dictate a letter. If anyone, we, we're not going to spend a ton of time, but if like Second Peter's different from First Peter, different authors, it's like, well, maybe Peter actually wrote one and the other one was written by someone else. And so stylistically, they're different. Uh, so this is written by probably almost like a secretary who's writing it for him. And then it's sent... And then Peter is handing off what he's doing in this letter. You can imagine this is about 62 to 65 AD. So the Gospels are taking place in like the late 20s, early 30s AD. So this is about 30 years of Peter walking with Jesus, of walking, living with the disciples, seeing the church grow. And what's happened is over those 30 years, he has seen the church go from just this localized kind of phenomenon to becoming now going out global. It's going around the world to the edges of the known world at that time. And so what Peter's doing here is he is taking all the wisdom that he's learned from walking with Jesus, knowing Jesus, living with the disciples, seeing the church grow, and he's going to kind of distill that into this letter and write this letter to the churches all throughout what's called Asia Minor. And this is what's called a circular letter. And so if you look at the verse one, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, we'll come back to that, of the dispersion... Now, dispersion just means they were, during the persecution of the first century, they're kind of sent out. They had to flee. And so they're just kind of like a supernova from Jerusalem. They're just spreading out over the area. And so they're in the dispersion that specifically goes into a place called Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. You can throw up the, uh, the, the map there. Just to give you an idea of where this is at, over to the right hand, down at the very bottom, right hand bottom corner, is where Jerusalem is. Just to get your bearings here and what's going on. This area that Peter is writing to is up there in Asia Minor, up there where it's written in red. Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, or Pontus, right? And so he, this is an area probably, I don't know, four-fifths or about the size of Texas, to give you an idea of the size here. And so this is a massive area where the believers have spread out. This is an area that's highly pluralistic, highly diverse, both religiously, ethnically, culturally. And so Peter's writing to this area, and he's saying there are truths that you can have that will essentially transcend anything that's going on in your circumstances. This area at this point is colonized or ruled by Rome, and so they have Roman rule. And here's the thing. When you have a diverse society in the ancient world, diverse culture in the ancient world, you need a unifier. A unifier. It's not so easy to just get onto a jet or send a drone or or whatnot, right? We see political leaders landing all around the globe all the time and they're, they're, they're able to just fly in in a couple hours and then and sit down at the table and negotiate things. Remember, in the ancient world, they can't do that. So if you're going to rule from a place that's way over there in Italy, Rome is in the upper left-hand corner. That's on the other end of the known world. 
If you're going to rule an area, what you have to do is you have to have a unifier. And one of the ways that you unify that is you tie in essentially the civil religion of worship of the emperor, the political religion, with the, re the religions of the area. And, and so here's the thing. And what they would do is they would have this cult of the emperor. And everything was okay as long as you could worship whoever you want. You could bow down to whoever you want. You could be committed to whatever things you want to be committed to as long as at the end of the day you also would affirm the deity of the emperor. And so here's the thing. It was very diverse. It was very pluralistic. In some ways it parallels our culture in that way. But also what is incredibly important is that they weren't so much hated or persecuted for what they would not approve or, or for what they would approve, for what the religions were. They were, they were hated... They were suspect because of what they would not approve. That they wouldn't add on to their Christianity. Worship of the emperor. That they wouldn't add on the civil religion on top of it. And because of this, they were persecuted. Both physically, and one of the things that's going to come up in this letter especially is through social ostracization. I want to say ostrich. I can't say that word. Do what I mean. Just socially banished from polite society. And this is the, these are the dynamics in play when Peter is writing this letter. Highly pluralistic society. Highly diverse, both religiously and ethnically. But Christians could not bend the knee. And not because of what they were worshiping. That's fine, just keep it private, do your own thing, do it in your house, doing your little, your little thing that you do together, but as long as you will also publicly affirm the right things. And if you don't, then we'll concoct a reason to come get you. That's what Peter is addressing. Now, this has parallels to today's dynamics of what it means to be a Christian. We live in a religiously diverse society. We live in an ethnically diverse society, culturally diverse. We have politically, we are a very diverse society. But what will get you in trouble is not what you worship, but what you refuse to worship or affirm. Now, this is why one of the things we've, you've, probably, if you've been for a while, one of the things, and we're going to go into this, I think, a lot in this series and why this is. Uh, this is why nowadays it's not so much when, like a uh, hundred years ago when I was in college. Uh, <laughs> you guys make me feel like I'm aged. Um, when I was in college, I remember it was more like, are you right? So it was debates around, are we right? Are we wrong as Christians? Do we hold to the right or wrong things? And it's no longer a debate around, are you right? Are you wrong? But it's now you are bad. You hold to the wrong things and it makes you morally inferior and a danger. So why, while very little physical persecution in our days is happening. Not, I mean, none of us are thinking like, obviously this, this letter lands differently if you're right now sharing this around in Afghanistan. But at the same time, I think in many ways, this is why we're seeing with the parallel dynamics, why we're seeing the social ostracization ramp up. 
And it's why, even though Christians of all ages are exiles, they have a land not their own. They're strangers in this strange land. We should expect this, but there's a way in which this lands acutely in every age, and we as Christians should be aware of it. In other words, because what's happening is it's like we're, we're on the boat of life and it's taking on water and everything's in chaos and we're running around and what we start to do is we start to grab onto anything we can to, that feels like it'll give us life, that will give us survival. But the problem is the whole thing is rocky. The whole thing is taking on water. Some of the exile dynamics, just a few, will, there'll be a lot throughout this series, but I think some of these will resonate. Uncertainty about the future. So exile looks like uncertainty about the future, economic and vocational insecurity. What will happen in my career path if I will not affirm the right things? Displaced. You can also talk about just socially what will happen. Displaced, the sense of loss of enduring connections, familial bonds, cultural identity, the language we use, the truths that we hold to, the things that we value, the things that are defaults in our society, they are shifting rapidly. And so that, that, that kind of sense of this is my place, these are my people, now all of a sudden we feel displaced even though perhaps we have not moved geographically because we have not left but the, everything around us has left us and has changed. And I think one of the things, again, I want to go into in this series is how social media, I believe, is amplifying it because in some ways, especially if you're younger, our place of exile is almost existing on social media. Like almost where we live our lives. And so I want to go into the dynamics of that because the thing is, we are, it's so amplified by being, we feel so isolated in comparison, right? Like if, if, if I go onto Instagram and I'm sitting there and my kids are covered in, in spaghetti and they're covered in mud and they're covered in the, you know, and they're just like, my other kids got like a lighter, you know, and it's like, you know, something's on fire. Like all this stuff is happening in my house. My, and, and, and Lauren, I walk in and Lauren's just sitting there like, what am I supposed to do, right? My wife is Lauren. And thanks, you have a nanny. Um, and so we, it's chaos. And then you go onto Instagram and everyone's got like these like Abercrombie and Fitch children, right? Like they're all target models, right? And you're just like, hey, right? And you're like, what are they doing that I don't know how to do, right? And so what it does is we're constantly comparing ourselves and we're looking around and while we're in our PJs eating a bowl of Cheerios, everyone else is out having fun. And, and all of life is put through these filtered frameworks where everyone looks good, their skin looks good, and I'm looking at guys from college, I'm going, why are they not aging and I am, right? Sense of being displaced. And then also weakness, living at the margins, removed from the levers of power. Now, this, we'll explore as we go throughout, is not the worst thing. But there is a diminishing sense of having a voice, a legitimate voice. Not a voice crying out in the wilderness, but a voice. Just having an, a voice that's heard. And I'm talking about the Imago Dei, that I'm a human being, and so when I speak, it actually matters. My opinion actually is something that, that actually gets tabulated into the greater you know, conversation. But what happens is increasingly, you feel like even when I speak, I have to yell or I have to get shrill, even to, to even surface on the radar. And so there's an increasing sense of having any kind of a say. In other words, what happens is more and more it feels like while I'm vulnerable to all the realities and that's going up, I have less and less authority to actually do anything about it. And so what happens is that leads to just an increasing sense of anxiety and vulnerability. I think this gets to the core of the issue, what it means to live as an exile today. 
Because Christians of every generation are exiles. And just say this again. Christians of every generation, Peter says this because we are exiles. As we go throughout the series, we'll unpack what he means by that from the Old Testament. Where is he getting that language from? He's alluding to something. But we are citizens of another kingdom. We are strangers in a strange land. We are looking for a home that is not of this world. That's where we're journeying. That's what we're seeking. However, the dynamics of exile will play out differently in every generation. So what ties them together? This is going to help us get to the second point. What ties them together? What ties the dynamics? What's Peter addressing here that's universal? Well, notice in verse 1, Peter says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, and he talks about where they are. Notice that Peter says, not only is it your circumstances, where you are, where whatever's going on around you, or what is happening, but he's saying, do you understand that who you are is you are in exile? Who you are. This is identity language. In other words, whatever is happening in the culture around us, it matters that we understand what it means to be exiles because deep down, the issue is not just the chaos all around us. The issue is that we're not aware of how the chaos is starting to go internal and what it's doing inside of us and how we're beginning to understand ourselves and we're beginning to live our lives. And as Proverbs says, out of the heart flow the issues of life. And what's happening is we're so distracted by all of the chaos around us and all the division and all the debates and all the fighting that we're not aware of what's beginning to happen internally. And Peter says, you must address that. Another a modern Peter, Peter Berger, uh, he just, I think he passed away about a year and a half ago. Um, he's at Boston University for years. He's a legend kind of in sociology and those areas. He is well known for what's called the secularization theory. And he's well known because in the early 1960s, I think it was The Sacred Canopy or one of those books they wrote, where he, he made the argument that everyone had followed for a while, which was secularization is just the fact that as everything goes, every you know, religious faith diminishes and we get more science and um, empirical data about things, people will just kind of put away old or, uh, superstitious supernatural beliefs and they'll begin to just believe kind of like science, right? So religion will just die. And what... He led kind of the charge on that, and then by the 1990s, he said, listen, that was wrong. Statistically, that's wrong. The data is not showing that. And in fact, what he says, though, here's the important thing to understand, though. He says, we are going to more of a pluralistic society. And this is where it parallels what happens in Peter's society. And this is what he says, why it's important. He says, and here's the issue. What actually is happening in modern humanity, in the Western cultures especially, is that all these, what he calls plausibility structures, think, think of your life like a boardwalk. And, and underneath it are these pillars of things that you're defaulting to. They're just assumed and you're living in light of those realities. And what he's saying is in a pluralistic society, what's actually happening is that we are actually losing all of the plausibility structures. And, and because of that, all of the questions of identity, who I am, how am I to live, what is my purpose, where did I come from, where is this whole thing going? All of those are in question and they're in flux and it's like being on the boat and all of a sudden now nothing is stable. And what he says is that is the issue in our day is that we cannot find any kind of a sense of self because all of those are in question and in flux and shifting. Especially those of you who are younger, you've come of age in the midst of this. 
And so what Peter says, and here's what Peter Berger is saying, is that to be an exile in the modern world is to be adrift. No truth, no meaning, no purpose. See, it's not just the external. It's the issue of the internal. And having no sense of who I am. Never having a sense of coming home. Because what do I come home to? And what Peter says, the apostle, <laughs> is we need solid ground. We need truths to stand on. That's what Peter provides. That's, so three truths to stand on. Uh, we, here's the thing. We tend to read the greetings in the New Testament as kind of like flyover country, right? Uh, like, you know, when I was, well, we lived in California for a while, and people would like, you know, refer to, they're flying to New York, and they're like, you know, I just look down at flyover country. I'm like, I'm from there, right? That lake with my family's down there, right? And so, but it, it was just flyover country, right? And we tend to read the greetings and the closing of letters in the New Testament as if they're flyover country. Not, nothing really of significance there, just fly over it, get to the real stuff. But what Peter does here is he actually establishes from the get-go three truths that you must have in order to be able to plant your feet in the midst of exile. And then from there, he's going to build on these throughout the rest of the letter. Uh, so those are whose you are, who you're becoming, and who you live for. So truth number one, whose you are. Uh, verse, number, or verse two, according to. So you're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So who am I? No, Peter says you are an exile according to. And notice that he doesn't say you're accidental exiles. He doesn't say you're mistaken exiles. Whoops, plan B. God's like, oh, you're, you're going to be an exile. Hurry up, let's get an exile plan down there, right? You're elect exiles. God elected to make you an exile. God elected for his church to be exiles before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1, 6 says that God not only decided to save you, but what it's saying here is that he oversees all of our circumstances, the decisions, our temperament, our dependencies, our family tree, the cultures we find ourselves in, all for the purpose of him bringing us to himself. He knows every hair on your head. Now, we tend to think of this in terms of a debate around predestination or election, right? You guys heard of that, right? God's sovereignty. And so, he's, and so we immediately go to like this dry debate around, well, God foreknew us, so let's just debate that. Now, there's a place for that. We'll probably come back to that in this series, but here's the thing. What it says here is you are foreknown. Foreknown. And don't make this a dry reality. Here's the thing. In the Old Testament, which Peter is already referring and alluding to the Old Testament, known language was language that wasn't just like facts and data. Known language was intimacy language. This is why in the Old Testament, you get the like Adam went in and knew Eve, or this guy went in and knew his wife, or this new. They're not saying they went in there and they had coffee together, okay? It means they went in, it means intimate relations. And, and when it says he foreknows us, it means that God is passionately anticipate he's created us he's anticipating looking forward to the moment that we arrive on the stage of the world he knows us he has a plan for us he's our heavenly father but as like exiles it also means god for you who you are and what is going on it means whether you have achieved all your goals or not god for new and knows you it means whatever your darkest struggle god for new and he knows this means wherever you find yourself employed or unemployed, single, married, whatever are the things that at, the, at, at night when you're laying down and you're going, God, why am I not this? Why am I not that? Here's the thing. God knows. It's not a mistake. And he longs for you to know him in the way also that he knows you. He's inviting you into a relationship with him. 
He knows and it doesn't change his plans for you, his call upon you, his desire for you. God is not shocked. God is not disappointed. God is consistent in his desire for you. He is a father. Why does that matter in the midst of everything being shaky? It means that in the midst of everything being shaky, again, another dynamic we're going to go into throughout the series, is that one of the first things we run to is we cling to things. In the illustration, it's the boat, the mask, you know, or the, the chair, whatever I can cling to. Some, but here's the thing, in real life, we start clinging to significant others. We start clinging to a career. We start clinging to all these things. And here's the thing. Cling to those, leave and cleave. It says about clinging, cleaving to somebody else. But here's the thing. When we cleave to that thing as if our life depended on it, as if our soul depended on it, and we expect it to keep us out of the chaos and keep us above the waters and maintain all the peace in our life, it will destroy you and them. God is saying you must be able to put your feet down into a reality, which is that a truth, which is that there is a heavenly father. He foreknew you. And he is inviting, inviting you into a relationship with him where that desire, that seeking, you can be known. It's so easy to forget that today because we start, the problem is when everything feels out of control, we start either feeling if there's no one up there, because there's no, no one, I'm not walking around in my day and it's like chaos and I go into a coffee shop and they're like, well, there is a heavenly father who holds this world in his hands. And I'm like, wow, thank you, right? Like, I don't get that, right? It's just, ah! It's, just, it's like being on the pontoon boat. Everywhere I go, everyone's like running around screaming, and I'm like, okay, I've got to remind myself in the midst of it, there is a Heavenly Father here. There is a Creator, and He's in control. We may not know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds it. And in the midst of all of that, I don't have to take control or turn over my entire life to someone who promises to take it for me. I have a heavenly father who knows, and he cares for me. Truth number two, who you are becoming. Whose you are, truth number one. Truth number two, who you are becoming. According to, in the sanctification of the spirit, the second part of verse two says, one of the plausibility structures lost in the modern world is truth. It's truth. And, and the issue is that what flows from that is then the sense of what is good. What is good. I've been, I have a lot of friends who are actually mental health, psychiatrists, psychologists, physical counselors. And when I'm talking to them, one of the things they're seeing increasingly is a rise in depression, despondency. But here's the thing, it's all rooted at the end of the day in the sense of not being good, of being bad. Of just having something deeply wrong with us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, if you know that you have sin, we know we have guilt, we know we've hurt others, we know we've wrong. But the question then becomes, how can I be good? Am I salvageable? Am I just lost? Am I just, just bad forever? And there's no hope for me. See, if we, we can eliminate any absolute standard of truth or holiness. But here's the thing, if you eliminate that, then you lose the ability to actually judge yourself by any standard. That's not always shifting. back to that. So exile in the modern world is deeply moral. I'm bad, but how do I justify, justify myself? How can I be good? 
And here's the thing, we live in an age, because everything is all over the place, you have a thousand different narratives of a good and righteous cause of what this life is all about. And everyone's telling you, unless you join my cause in my way, in my timing, with my kind of fervor, then if you don't, then you can never be good. And in fact, actually, if you do join my cause, here's the thing, at the end of the day, how do you ever know if you've actually done it enough? You actually can't. Just try harder. And if you try harder, I promise at some point down the road, maybe, if you're lucky, maybe I'll write a letter or, you know, some kind of like letter of, of affirmation or something saying that maybe perhaps someday he'll be good, right? And our lives are driven by this seeking to be righteous, this seeking to be good. And here's the thing, this world does not offer redemption. There is no story out there that ultimately can give you redemption. All the stories are climb faster, climb harder, run faster, jump higher. And maybe if you can do that successfully, then maybe you will be approved. And the whole time you're asking by whose standard. And as soon as that person that you please, then either they're fickle and they move the goalposts on you, or the person down the street says, actually, over here, other polarized viewpoint over here, you are scum, come over here, and then you can prove yourself and be righteous. That is the world that we live in. And in the midst of it, what Peter's saying here is, listen, when all the bottom falls out on truth, bottom falls out on what is good, what is holy, what is beautiful, what is true, you need to have something that says, this is good, this is true, this is holy, this is righteous. Yes, you've fallen short. Here's how you can be reconciled and redeemed. It is the most needed message in our day. And what Peter says is that there is a process called sanctification by God's Spirit. Sanctify just means, it's another word for holy, set apart. In other words, truly good in the Genesis 1 sense that God says, this is good, I delight in this. Perfect. Because God says, I am good and it reflects my glory. And he says, I can sanctify you and make you good. Two parts to that process. First part is you can be positionally sanctified. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that you can be 100%. Because usually we think of sanctification like I'm getting better and better and better. Sanctification says you can be set apart, made 100% good in Christ. But then also, I've got to hurry up here. I'm going to have to skip some stuff. Also, we are in the process of being sanctified. We are in the process of being sanctified. See, there's two parts. One, Jesus. First Corinthians, Paul starts the letter. He says, you who are sanctified, past tense, in Jesus Christ. Talking to the church. Well, here's the thing. You go, well, First Corinthians must have had it together. Have you ever read First Corinthians? All right? Leaves like, reads like a Playboy magazine or something. Like, it, he's, the stuff that he's having to address, you're like, I've never had to pastorally address some of this stuff, right? And I've been doing this for 10 years. And, and he's saying, you are sanctified. In other words, how can he say that? He's not just, you know, filling them with hot air. What he's saying is, in Jesus Christ, his blood is enough and his sacrifice is enough. He is the holy God who came into the world. He is good. He lived the perfect, obedient, joy-filled life and became an exile, mind you, in this world. Still in exile, filled with joy and obedience. And he gave his life so that you would know his father, you would know him. And he made it 100%. He set you firmly on firm ground. And then he says, you are being sanctified. You are now in the process of that. And the Spirit of God will change your heart as you dwell on God's Word, as you go to God. And what will happen is, as God gets a hold of your heart, increasingly, not only will your heart find things of God, things that you want, but your mind will begin to navigate the world, finding the things of God rational. What your heart wants, your mind finds rational. Your, your soul, your affections will find desirable. 
and your will will find doable. And as God gets a hold of your heart increasingly and your soul increasingly, what happens is those other three areas follow because you're not trying to constantly put together a narrative and make things happen and tell yourself, no, my will really wants this in order to do whatever you want because you don't have any grounding of truth. He's saying you will be sanctified and because of that you will look more and more like Jesus. You will look good. And in the midst of a world that said that judges, that has kangaroo courts set up everywhere, saying you are nothing, you are bad, what will happen is you will know that before the one judge who matters, he has declared you good. We'll come back to that in just a second. Truth number three, who you live for. Read verses, verse two again, the end. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What is your purpose? Follow Peter's line of thought. What is your purpose in this world? Peter's saying, God has declared you holy. Now you get to put that holiness on display. So he's, he's talking about human sexuality. He's talking about humility. He's talking about welcoming and serving the outcast. He's saying, serve others. He's saying, living with joy versus envy. Live with integrity. Live with kindness. He's saying, you will look like the holy God of the universe. Increasingly. And that is your call. Now, stop there really quickly. I know that as I begin to talk about obedience to Jesus Christ, as Peter's going to say, you are to be holy as, as God is holy. But some of you immediately say, I, well, that's where I know I can't do that. That's right over this Christian thing, like the train just kind of goes off the traction. Here's the thing. You're right. <laughs> One, welcome to the club. I'm like the president of that club, okay? Like, I'm not up here because of the fact that somehow I got my life together. Like, I went to seminary, and then I mastered divinity, and I got a degree in it, and now I'm going around, and I'm just kind of showing everyone how to walk in my wake, right? No, I'm just as broken, just as dependent, just as in need of a Savior who is so much bigger than me. And so if you're right now, you hear this obedience thing, this, this, this need for atonement, this, this guilt thing, this, if you're hearing it and you're thinking, oh, well, that's just for the superhuman beings in here, that religion is just for them, and somehow evolutionarily they just kind of fell into this thing. No. Every human being is in need of God's grace in order to walk in obedience because here's the thing notice Peter doesn't say that it's for obedience to the law but for obedience to Jesus Christ what is the difference Jesus said I came into the world not to abolish law but in order to fulfill the law Jesus came in as the perfect sacrifice as God himself the holy God of the universe lived the perfect life as a human being fully God fully man that we could not live he bridged that gap and he did it again in exile, in our circumstances, just like we live in today with all these things rushing into his identity, internally, constantly, the boat around him going underwater, and still he lived with joy, and he followed and was obedient to his father. And he showed that there is life and there's glory. He showed us what is good, and he said, when you're separated from that in your sin, I will lay down my life. My obedience will become your obedience. My righteousness becomes your righteousness. See what he's saying? I, he says, and Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, the call to obedience is not just a call to, to slavery, to drudgery, to just, you know, kind of lean in and don't enjoy life and just kind of sloth through life and do the religious thing. Know what it's saying. And something we're going to hit throughout this series is democratic freedom can give you the freedom to do whatever you want. 
but biblical freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom of being made one with him, of his spirit dwelling within us. Here's the thing. It frees you to pursue and do what is truly good and beautiful and true. The call to obedience is the call to freedom. The call to obedience is far more than the call to freedom in this world. The greatest freedom is because if you turn yourself over to the freedoms of yourself and autonomy, you will just find a new kind of tyrant, which is the worst kind of tyrant, which is you. Or those who are good enough to manipulate you with advertising. Jesus says, I have come to set your soul free so your identity would be free, so you would be able to live what is true, good, and beautiful. And I have come to lead you there. See, today, obedience isn't about digging yourself out of a hole. Obedience is learning with your heavenly Father to learn to walk when you've never learned to walk before. I always would say with our kids, like the way you learn to teach a kid to walk is that you remember it's a controlled fall. Walking is a controlled fall, right? Like, ah, 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 right? like you're trying to figure out how to walk. Right? And they're like, what does this happen? Well, you've got to lean in. You've got to be falling. And, and then you, you use your legs. And so what's happening is in the midst of this world where God's saying, go forward. There's grace for you. My grace is before you. My son has gone before you. He's calling us to walk in exile and faithfully follow him. In the midst of it, we're going, I'm afraid to walk. Because if I take a step and I fall, what will happen? He says, I will hold you. My grace is sufficient. I will have your arms. I will teach you to walk. Just take this step. I've gone before you. Obedience is learning to walk in freedom. And here's the thing. If you cannot, I think it's MLK who said, if you cannot run, then by all means walk. And if you cannot walk, then by all means crawl. But by all means keep on moving. Christian, you have grace that goes before you. Jesus says, in the midst of this time, don't clam up. Don't hide. Don't just try to grab onto the mass and something in this world or another person. But know that if you cling to Jesus, you put your feet down firmly in him. He goes before you and he will teach you to walk and before you know it, you'll be running in ways you never thought possible. And that can happen because lastly, sprinkling with his blood. Seems kind of morbid, right? Hey, dear John, good to hear from you. Good news, you're sprinkled with blood. Oh, okay. What's he saying there? He's alluding to something in the past. Exodus 24, 3 through 8. In exile, the people were trying to obey God, but they kept failing. And so what did Moses do? Moses kept covering them with blood, sacrificing animals and covering them with blood. He'd sprinkle them with blood. And he's alluding to that because the perfect sacrifice has come. He's saying, in Jesus, the blood has been sprinkled. The blood is constantly sprinkled on you. It never runs out. It's always sufficient. And it always goes before you. The Father foreknew your need. The Spirit is at work in you. And the Son is enough. God has already made provision for your sin, sin you haven't even committed yet or you're even not aware of yet that you're committed. So you don't have to hide when you're in exile. You can put your feet down and navigate without fear. Here's the thing, when they sneer, failure, backwards, bigot, you can respond perhaps. Perhaps that's not even the half of it but I have already been judged more harshly than Jesus Christ. Your kangaroo courts, your session that we're having here, they may speak condemnation, and according to the world, I may be condemned. But the God of the universe not only preaches acceptance, he purchased my acceptance. In fact, my Jesus was resurrected and condemned by the world, so rejection by the world only deepens my grasp of my salvation from another world. 
In Jesus, I know who I am, whose I am, and why I am. In this world, I may be in exile, but in the kingdom of God, I am elect. And this light and momentary affliction is nothing compared to the glories that await me. See, when everything around us is chaos and sinking, this is the ground you can stand on. Stand your feet firmly in these truths, Anthem. Throughout this series, we are going to address what about the legitimate guilt? What is repentance looking? Like? What does it look like to build my identity on Christ? What does it look to walk in humility? What does it look like to follow God out into the world? What does it look like to be submitted to government? What does it look like or to stand up? What is it? All these things we're going to be hitting. But where it starts is anthem. You must be able to put your feet in these truths that you have in Christ, no matter what the voices say, no matter what the circumstances may say. That's your exiled identity. You are his. He is yours. He has and is making you good. Follow him. And grace and peace, as Peter says, will be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us this week to walk in this identity, walk in this truth. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are making all things new in Jesus Christ. Help us to follow him. Make us new in Jesus' name. Amen.